1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are still a few on the back table back there. I'd encourage you to pick one up. If you don't have one, well, the shuffle's kind of happening here um, while we're making our transition. Uh, It's important, I'd say even vital, for you to have these words in front of you as I read them this morning. Uh, These are the words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit given to the Apostle Paul, recorded about 2,000 years ago for our for our benefit, for the benefit of those who they were written to, and then to our benefit as, as well. As we spend time together in this text, I would encourage you to keep your Bible open, keep your app open and your phone, uh, so that, uh, that you can see these words as we continually reference them. I think that the sermon is far more enjoyable. Uh, I know when I sit under preaching, the sermon is far more enjoyable when I uh, am able to look at the text in front of me and see uh, what the what the pastor what the preacher is is speaking to and referring to to in the in the text. First Thessalonians chapter four. This morning we're going to begin in verse thirteen. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, which is verse eighteen. First um, Thessalonians four thirteen through eighteen. Again, the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church in Thessalonica. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may grieve as others do who have no hope. So that you, excuse me, let me me start over. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with a shout or with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I'm sure that many of you have been, uh, have been keeping up to date on the situation and the events that are transpiring in Israel, in Gaza, the, the, the current situation that has transpired beginning on August, or excuse me, October 7th. Hamas, a terrorist-based organization that operates out of Gaza, launched an attack on Israel. And Hamas, we can say objectively, is a wicked organization that seeks to carry out genocide against the Jewish people and all kinds of people who differ from them because of the version of radicalized Islam that they subscribe to. They would consider the Jewish people and many others to be infidels. And the scenes coming out of Gaza are nothing short of horrendous, and their wickedness has been put on full display for the world to see. And it's been well recorded uh, that Hamas has made statements in the past that our enemies love life and we love death. And not surprisingly, the Western world, there are many people who are confused, who have shown support even in the last days for Hamas. They weaponize political conversations uh, about anything to do with Palestine or Israel or Hamas or Gaza. And they relativize good and evil. What should the Christian think about these things? What should the Christian think about what has transpired in our world recently? Well, 
Based on the biblical data, Christians should oppose what is evil and promote what is good, not defined by the world, but what is defi- how it is defined by God. Christians love life and recognize death as a great enemy, albeit a defeated enemy. Radicalized Islam exalts martyrdom and pursues it, taking as many, quote, infidels along with them as possible. Christianity does not fear martyrdom, but does not pursue it or choose it voluntarily. Taking the life of another person is considered murder and is prohibited in the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Christians recognize that Jesus Christ came into the world not merely as a prophet, but as God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, and he came to draw all peoples to himself. Christianity, therefore, appeals to people of all religious and ethnic backgrounds to come to Christ and to trust in Christ as their only hope for the future. In contrast, Islam, which seeks to eliminate other religious groups by enslaving them and even putting them to death. Islam, in fact, is a wicked religion that celebrates moral evil. Radical Islam indoctrinates its adherents to exterminate people who do not share their Islamic heritage and views. And Christianity teaches that man is created in God's image. And Christianity offers life to the world through faith in Jesus Christ, continually appealing to love and to all kinds of people which the gospel message is extended to. And so, because of what's transpired in Israel and Gaza in the last, in the last days, many Christians have watched those events unfold and have gone to the passage that we look at this morning for answers. Answers to questions like, is this the start of a larger global conflict? Is this an indicator that the final things that the Bible talks about are in fact underway? But as I just read this passage this morning, the answer to those questions won't be found here. And while we can make some definitive statements about the evils of Hamas and and how they cut against biblical Christianity, I don't think that we can find answers to questions about global conflicts and final things in this passage other than just on face value. Let me urge you this morning, when you approach the Bible, approach the Bible with a keen eye. Ask yourself, why is the author here writing what he's writing? Study the Bible, not looking to validate predictions made by outsiders, but rather to submit yourself fully to the Holy Spirit and the transformative effect that he intends to have on your life, that this passage is designed to have on our lives. We're limited in our human minds, in our human hearts, but there is very clear truth that can be communicated and understood through what the Apostle Paul writes here to the church in Thessalonica. So we have to ask ourselves, what does this passage teach us this morning? What is this passage for us in 2023 in the United States of America, in Jamestown, North Dakota, have to say to us this morning. And in order to do that, we have to understand the context. Now, if you've been with us for the last several weeks in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we've explored the context uh, in great detail. The context to which Paul writes to these people in Thessalonica who have been converted, who have heard the gospel message and responded in faith. 
the things that they are undergoing, the persecution that they have undergone as a church, and the tensions that could get hot very quickly are a very real threat to them. And they begin wondering about the future. What does the future look like for Thessalonians, for the Thessalonians? They thought this 2,000 years ago. This morning, we think much, we think similar things. What does the future look like for us as a church? What does the future for us look like as a society? How should we be thinking? How should we be approaching one another? And how should we be approaching the world around us? So what does this passage teach us? And I think I'm going to give you five things this morning. Usually I have two or three, so, but that's fine. They're, they're relatively short. There are five things that then will guide our time together, and I want to just walk through this passage thinking about the, the very important top-level arguments that the Apostle Paul makes from this passage. The first thing that we'll consider is the importance of sound doctrine. The second is the reality of grief. Third is the foundation of the Christian's hope. Fourth is the Christian's hope realized. And then finally, the purpose of doctrinal clarity. The importance of sound doctrine, the reality of grief, the foundation of the Christian's hope, the Christian's hope realized, and the purpose of doctrinal clarity. We'll start at the beginning of that list and the importance of sound doctrine. You don't have to go beyond verse 13 to see how or the intent of Paul. Look into your Bibles. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. His goal is to inform the Thessalonians. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that that we may do all the words of this law. What Paul is saying is that he's going to speak of them to them, about revealed things, about things that God has communicated clearly through his word, and about things that he has revealed to the Apostle Paul for the great benefit of the Thessalonians and ultimately, subsequently, to us. We see Paul reemphasize this notion in verse 15. He says, For we declare to you by, the wor- by a word from the Lord. God has revealed to Paul what Paul is about to tell the Thessalonians. God himself, he has revealed something that is true to Paul. There are secret things that God has not revealed to Paul to communicate. There are secret things that the Bible does not communicate to us. But in this instance, Paul is saying, my goal here is to inform you about what God has in fact revealed. When it comes to the discussion of final things in the last day, There are things that belong to the Lord. Jesus, speaking to his disciples about the second coming, says in Mark 13, 32, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Those who seek out what God has hidden from us do so in vain. But what God has revealed in his word to us to be read, considered, meditated on, taught to our children and to others, in order that we may keep his commands. Oftentimes, Christians fall into traps of chasing YouTube rabbit holes about speculation regarding final things. 
But Paul is clear. What is revealed to you can be said and relied upon. We can know exactly what God has revealed to us in His Word. What He has spoken to us. Through the law, through the prophets, through the apostles. This is the soundness of sound doctrine. Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians to be uninformed. He he wants them to be informed based on God's Word, and we can be informed based on God's Word as well. The soundness of sound doctrine is that that doctrine can be substantiated. That it's built on something. It's built on a foundation. This is a long time ago, but about a year ago, we went through the book of Titus, the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Uh, And in that letter, uh, Paul talks about sound doctrine regularly. And we define sound doctrine as statements about belief that are in good condition. Statements about our faith, what we believe, that are in good condition. This is sound doctrine. And the metaphor that undergirds the notion of sound doctrine is a house or a building. A house that is built on a firm foundation is a house uh, that is not in jeopardy. But a house that is built on a shaky foundation is a house that is, in fact, in jeopardy of crumbling. The soundness of sound doctrine is the good condition that our doctrine is in, but that condition requires a solid foundation. Doctrine that is determined apart from God's Word is built on a shaky foundation, and that doctrine will not persist. Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians to be uninformed. Paul wants the Thessalonians, and this is true for us as well, to know what has been revealed by God so that they can live according to it and teach one another, and they can teach these truths to future generations. The hope that the Thessalonians needed could only come from doctrine built firmly on the foundation of the Word of God. The operative word there being hope. Because this leads us to our next idea, and that's the reality of grief. The reality of grief. The Thessalonians, we can surmise, were concerned about the future. They were concerned about things to come. What had currently transpired in and among them left them thinking, what could happen in the future? We've Maybe they had lost loved ones within the church or ones that they had loved who had trusted Jesus. Maybe they had lost them, they had died, they had passed from this life. And they knew that the persecution against them might come in even more hot than it had previously. The point to which some of them may have been martyred. Some of them may have lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. They believe and they believe firmly. But the truth is that that that, that draws the eye of a city and a culture that does not, does not think sympathetically towards Christians. We've already seen that in the book of Acts in chapter 17 when Paul and Silas arrive in Thessalonica that the city officials and the Jews say these people have turned the world upside down. 
Now, if there's something that we don't like in, in our lives, it's change. And when the world, our world is threatened to be turned upside down, we fight as individuals and as cultures tooth and nail to keep things the same. And so they recognized, they realized that because of the persecution they experienced already, tensions could get hot any minute between these new Christians and the Jewish people in Thessalonica or the Roman city officials in Thessalonica. And so the Thessalonians are thinking to themselves, would we get to see a loved one who has gone to be with the Lord again? Do we get to see them again? Now, in our culture, uh, which is heavily Christianized, we, we think about when a loved one passes, we think about seeing them again. And we think about that, that's sort of ingrained or built in us. But for the Thessalonians, who had not yet begun to fully grasp the doctrine of the resurrection, had not begun to fully grasp what came after death, this would have been a very real question. Would we get to see our loved ones again? Was, is, the, is this relationship severed for eternity? If Jesus comes back and we go to meet him, is that separate from those who died before us? How does this all work? The Thessalonians' grief was real. And they knew, they knew that more grief was on the horizon. Note here, though, the reality of grief, that Paul doesn't tell the Thessalonians not to grieve. doesn't say, get over it. Don't think about it anymore. Move on. He assumes. He assumes that their grief is the natural thing to do. Jesus grieved when his friend Lazarus died. We learn in John eleven thirty three 33, that after Jesus spoke to Mary about the death of her brother, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The Apostle John, who was with Jesus in this moment, perceived, saw with his own eyes the grief that Jesus felt over the loss of his dear friend Lazarus. The grief may have been short-lived because Jesus' next act was to raise Lazarus from the dead. But the grief was nonetheless evident. Grief is a reality for us as well. The holidays are around the corner. Empty chairs for the first time around a table. Reminders of a difficult year and loss behind us. Grief is natural for us as a people. Paul doesn't tell them not to grieve. Paul tells them to grieve. But with a caveat. If our loved ones are in Christ, if they're joined to Christ by faith, if they're Christians, the separation is only temporary. And that brings us to Paul's next thought. The foundation of the Christian's hope. What is the foundation of the Christian's hope? Again, we still haven't moved on from verse 13, but Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do 
who have no hope. Therefore, the Christian is to grieve as one who has hope. Would the Thessalonians get to see their loved ones again? And Paul answers the question. In short, the answer is yes. Yes. The foundation of the Christian's hope, Paul goes on to unpack, is the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 14. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The foundation of the Christian hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was raised as the precursor to our resurrection. He goes before us in resurrection. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, was raised on the third day after he was crucified. And after 40 days of walking on the earth, ascended to heaven where he is at the Father's right hand, even in this very moment. He is there now, physically, bodily, in heaven, at the Father's right hand. This is where Jesus is currently, and he has a resurrected body. And we also, on the last day, if we, if we go in death prior to his second coming, we in fact will be raised similarly. If you and I die before Jesus returns, we can be confident that on the last day we will be raised like Jesus was raised. And so your friends and your family members, your loved ones, the ones you have loved dearly and who have passed from this life, trusting Christ for the life to come, will be raised on the last day when Jesus returns. Jesus says this all very directly in John chapter 6, verses 39 through 40. He said this, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. These are the words of Jesus. Everyone who is joined to Christ by faith, everyone who looks at Christ and looks to the Son and believes in the Son, will be raised never to die again. The Christian grieves over their loved ones. Maybe you're even in a state of grief this morning over her loved ones who have passed from this life, but you grieve with a hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, all of this is spoken or written to a local church. The assumption was that there would be those who would be buried within the local church, whether because of persecution or because of old age. For whatever reason, there would be believers who passed. The reality is that the local church would grieve and they would grieve together over the loss of a loved one. We're a relatively young church. 
And there's a lot of children in life in this room. But friends, this truth needs to be internalized even though death seems far off for us. This truth needs to be internalized even though for some of us, death may seem far off. We've experienced loss as a church and we'll experience more loss as a church. A lot more than we've already experienced. There will be funerals. We will bury one another. And we will grieve together. This truth needs to be internalized. But we will grieve together as those who have hope because those who precede us in death, we will meet again. We will see them again at Christ's second coming. Christ was raised and so we can be confident that our Christian and brothers and sisters will be raised as well. This is the foundation of the Christian's hope. But then fourthly, we begin to see Paul unpacked the Christian's hope realized. What is the realization? What will this look like? Paul doesn't presume to know when the last day is at hand. He doesn't try to predict the timing of Jesus' return, but rather he does give the revealed things to the Thessalonians. Note how Paul says all of this will take place in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first, verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. First, Paul says Jesus will descend from heaven where he is right now. And those who are still alive when Jesus comes will not proceed or go up before those who will be raised. That's what verse 15 says. Paul reemphasizes it again at the end of 16. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So Jesus descends from heaven. The resurrection happens. Those who are in Christ will be raised and receive their perfect glorified bodies. And then they will, along with those who remain, will be caught up in the air to meet Jesus. Verse 17 again. Those who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is how things will transpire in the last day. We now have an understanding of what it will look like. This is Jesus' second coming. Those who die and who are raised and those who are still alive on that day will go together to meet Jesus in the air. This is the Christian doctrine of the rapture. The Christian doctrine of the rapture. Now, the rapture has gotten a lot of airtime in pulpits and in Christian books in recent history. And our understanding of the rapture comes from this passage. This is the place where it's most clearly outlined. Some Christians, however, have taken liberties on this front. And again, we want to come to the text clearly with a keen eye 
submitting ourselves fully to the Holy Spirit and understanding what he would communicate to us through what Paul reveals here. What's described here are the events of the rapture on the last day, Jesus' glorious second coming. This text is not giving us an indication that the rapture is coming at a different time, but on the last day at Jesus' second coming. Paul's language that he uses here is reminiscent of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 when he tells a parable, a parable of the ten virgins. This is a common practice. What is described in the parable of the ten virgins is common practice in the ancient Jewish world. The parable indicates that there are five foolish virgins and that there are five wise virgins who took their lamps to go meet the bridegroom. There's a wedding at hand, but there are five foolish virgins had no oil for their lamp and the or had no oil for their lamp and the five wise virgins in fact did have oil for their lamp. The bridegroom we're told in the parable is late. He's running behind. And then in verse 6 the text says Jesus says in the story that he tells But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. The foolish virgins say, we don't have any oil. And they ask the wise virgins, could we we have some oil? And they say, no. And so they go to buy oil. But the wise virgins light their lamps and go meet the bridegroom and go to the marriage feast. In our culture, when we go to a wedding, You go to the ceremony and then usually there's a reception afterwards and you go to the reception venue and you sit down in your chair and you eat some hors d'oeuvres and sip a little punch and then you wait for the bride bride and the groom to show up with the rest of the bridal party because they want to take pictures or they want to do whatever it is that they want to do. But in ancient Jewish culture, a cry would be issued, here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. And then everyone would exit the building that they're in, exit the home and run out on the road to meet the bridegroom and accompany him to the wedding and to the wedding feast. When the bridegroom arrives, this is when the rejoicing begins. They see the bridegroom, he's come to take his bride, he's arrived, and there would be rejoicing. This is the imagery that Paul employs in our passage. This is the imagery that Paul employs in our passage. Jesus is the bridegroom. And we returns, it will be a wedding. The church is his bride. But he's not coming from a town adjacent to us, like the bridegroom in the parable of the ten virgins. He's coming from the sky. He's coming from heaven. He's coming from the place where he ascended 40 days after his resurrection. And just like the cry that precedes the bridegroom, Paul says there in our passage that there will be a cry of command. Come and meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom is here. It'll come with the voice of an angelic messenger. It'll come with the sounding of a trumpet. And those who are raised in him and those who are alive in him, his bride, the church, all of those people who are in him who have either died and are raised or are still alive, 
will go out and will meet him in the air. And they will accompany him to what's described at the end of the book of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The feast isn't up in the clouds, though. It's at the intersection of the new heavens and the new earth. We will all hear from the throne the words that the Apostle John heard in Revelation 21.3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus coming from heaven is an indicator that the wedding feast is about to begin. And we all go to meet him and accompany him to the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, at the intersection of the new heavens and the new earth, where God says, again from the throne, a verse later, Behold, I am making all things new. This is what Paul is describing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The beginning of a great feast, the beginning of eternity, the beginning of a reality where we will all be made new, where the heavens and the earth will be made new, where the dwelling place of God will in fact be with man because of the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our King. Paul writes to the Thessalonians not just about the grounding of their hope. The grounding of their hope is the resurrection of Jesus, but he writes to them about the details of what the last day will, in fact, look like. That leads us to our last last point here this morning, and that's the purpose of doctrinal clarity. The purpose of doctrinal clarity and why Paul goes into these details with the Thessalonians. He wants to give the Thessalonians a clear statement about the last day in order that they may be informed by God's word in the midst of their grief and in order that they might have hope. That is the purpose of of doctrinal clarity. And Paul tells them why clarity on this point matters. And it's the last verse in chapter 4. The reason doctrinal clarity matters is in order to be an encouragement, in order that those who make up the local church would be an encouragement to one another. Somewhere, somehow, the sentiment in our world has become doctrine divides. Maybe you've heard that. That's leaked into Christian circles. And when people have doctrinal distinctives and when they believe and make definitive statements about what the Bible says, people say things like doctrine divides divides. Paul doesn't think that way at all. He thinks that the clarity of Christian doctrine should be given in order that encouragement might might also be given. Paul says this level of doctrinal clarity encourages. God himself revealed what is spoken here, what is written here, in Scripture, in order to be an encouragement to those who mourn, to those who grieve, in order that they would grieve, not as those who don't have hope. 
this level of doctrinal clarity gives brothers and sisters a practical way to love one another. As we maneuvered through chapter 3 and as we maneuvered into chapter 4, we saw the importance of demonstrating love to one another as and within the local church. That the way that we conduct ourselves in the world at large is an act of love for one another within the local church. That Paul desires to be face-to-face with the Thessalonians in order to be an encouragement to them in order to demonstrate love to them. Not because the only way he could love them was by being face-to-face with them, but because in order, to, in order to fulfill the command that God had given him and to the church to love one another was at the forefront. This doctrinal clarity that Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 gives brothers and sisters in Christ a practical way to love one another. And so together we should internalize the reality that grief is on the horizon if it's not in our rearview mirror. We should realize additionally that this passage is designed for us to be an encouragement to one another. We should, with the encouragement that's given here, fill our quivers with it, and we can fire arrows at hopelessness when it springs up in the hearts of one another. Hopelessness is not an option for the Christian. Hopelessness is not an option for the Christian. Sure, you may feel hopeless in any given situation, but no one who is a Christian in the life of a church should go feeling hopeless for extended periods of time without the encouragement of other believers in their lives. This makes the gathering of together as a church with regularity essential for the life of the believer. If you've separated yourself from the local church for any time and you are feeling hopeless, the answer is to move yourself out of the isolation and back into the local church, into the gathering of the saints. We do not grieve as others do who have no hope. Rather, like Paul does for the Thessalonians here, we seek doctrinal clarity from God's word in order that we might be loving encouragement to one another. That leads us to a conclusion, and then we'll move our time together to the Lord's table. Paul writes all of this to the Thessalonians again so that they will keep loving one another well. So that they will keep loving one another well. Friends, what's written here will help us to be a loving church as well. The life of everyday faithfulness looks for ways to love one another through offering encouragement in the midst of grief. When we know that a brother or sister in Christ has lost a loved one, we should take the passage that is given here and we should consider the details of what Paul writes. We should consider the fact that the Christian's hope is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that the realization of that hope will come when Jesus Christ returns. We should remind one another that the bridegroom is on his way and we will go to meet him along with all those who have preceded us 
in death. This is love. Sometimes when we know that someone is grieving, we, we convince ourselves that we should give them space. And sometimes space is what's required. But then we begin to forget what that person is and may be going through. And we distance ourselves. And we fail to be an encouragement in the midst of grief. The doctrinal clarity that comes from this passage should prompt us to always be looking for brothers and sisters who are grieving and to give them encouragement in the hope of Jesus Christ and his imminent return. So we, together, as a point of conclusion and takeaway, should seek doctrinal clarity. Loving one another well means knowing what God says to his people. If you want to love one another well in this room, and you should if you're a believer, then you should know what God says to his people in his word. You should understand the promises that are given to you through his word and be ready and prepared to apply those to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not hoarding them, but freely and generously speaking them to one another. Speculating about secret things that belong to the Lord won't offer encouragement. But confidently asserting what God has revealed to us in his word will, in fact, be a great encouragement. What the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul was designed to give the Thessalonians hope. And so the encouragement to you is to seek doctrinal clarity by saturating yourself in God's word. Pursue doctrinal clarity as you read and study scripture. Attend congregational worship with a teachable heart. Ask questions to the elders about what you're unclear on. Buffalo City At Buffalo City Church, we have four elders, and we take this very seriously. And we take it very seriously because of what Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, And he gave, this is Jesus, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. For what purpose? We move towards maturity because of the work of, because of the work of the evangelists, the apostles, the shepherds the teachers that are given the role of shepherd and teacher is the role of the elder in the local church. Paul gives the purpose of this in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, so that we may together pursue doctrinal clarity and maturity. And he says, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. So what Paul is saying is that the elders of the local church are given to you in order to understand and apply doctrinal clarity to your life. And so if you're thinking to yourself, I don't understand what any of this is saying, come to one of us, myself or Mark or Blaze or John, and ask, what does this mean? I'm pursuing doctrinal clarity in my life in order that I may be an encouragement to my brothers and sisters and love them well. Seek. Doctrinal clarity. 
and then apply that doctrinal clarity in order to be a comfort to those who are mourn. Again, oftentimes we avoid those who are hurting. We don't like the idea of getting into people's hurt with them or observing it. Sometimes it's ugly. It's messy. It feels gross to us. We just want to be happy. We want the people around us to be happy as well. So we avoid those people who are hurting. But no one who is hurting needs space as much as they need hope. No one who is hurting needs space as much as they need hope. And this passage is the hope for those who are hurting when a believing loved one is lost. And the hope for a church that is grieving the loss of a beloved church member, a family member, or a friend. The hope of the resurrection. The hope of Jesus' second coming. Friends, you may be grieving here this morning for a loved one who has preceded you in death. Friend, know that you will see that person again. If they are in Christ, you will see that person again. You will, along with them, be caught up in the air to go and meet the Lord. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive in him will go together to meet him. You will joyfully go to meet Jesus in the air and feast together, celebrating all that Jesus has done for you. And now, together as a congregation, we get to look forward to that feast. Together we get to look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb by coming to and approaching the Lord's table together. The table that's set before us is designed to demonstrate to us and remind us of the reality that Jesus Christ is coming. That he died the death that we deserved. That his body was broken. Our body, full of sin, deserved death. And yet, Jesus Christ put himself in our place. He took our place. He is our substitute. His body was broken for us on our behalf. His blood was shed, the blood that was rightfully ours. So as we approach the table, we observe those elements together. The bread representative of Christ's body being broken. The the juice representative of Christ's blood being spilt. The body and the blood, the broken body, the shed blood that made us right with God. That brought us into his presence. And now we can approach the table in communion with him. We can approach the table not fearing that we would be put to death, but fully relying that Jesus was put to death in our place. And so when we approach the table, we think forward to the day when we will feast because we have communion with God. We will look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will descend from heaven, when we will ascend to meet him, and when we will feast for all eternity in his presence. This is good news. This is the cause for rejoicing. The Apostle Paul in the the letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11 writes this. He writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The table that's set before us is for those who are in Christ. If you have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have recognized that it was his broken body and his shed blood that was given for you, come and eat. You're welcome to approach the table, pick up the elements, take them back to your seat. When you're prepared in your heart, take them. But if you're not sure where you stand with God, if you're not sure that you should approach him, then take a moment, use this time to reflect on what's been said this morning. Reflect on the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners. Parents, we know that there are many kids in the, in the room as well. Exercise discretion. You're responsible in the way, this way for your children to be the primary discipler of your child. And so if your children have made a credible profession of faith, invite them to approach the table with you. But if they're far from the kingdom, don't. Give them the opportunity to observe. Give them the opportunity to hear you speak the gospel to them and explain to them the elements and the participation that you had during congregational worship today. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and the worship team is going to come up, and when you're prepared in your heart, head on down to the table, pick up the elements, and return to your seat, and take them celebrating what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, recognizing the reality that one day he will descend from heaven and we will rejoice and feast together with him forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, would our hearts now be open to the reality that you have made us whole and made us new in the person of Jesus Christ. As we take the bread, would we reflect on the broken body, the body broken for us? Would we reflect on the shed blood, the blood that was rightfully ours? Would our desire in these moments be to have communion with you and recognize that the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ, our Lord? God, would you cause us in our hearts to rejoice over the reality that you have, in fact, made a way for us, that a day is coming where we will feast forever. God, would you transform us and build us into a body even today? As we take this, would unity become even more evident in and among us? Would you join us together? God, our hope is in you and you alone. God, and for these things we rejoice. God, if there are those who are grieving this morning, would they approach the table seeing fully that what guarantee is offered to them in the table is that they will again see their loved ones. God, and ultimately, it will be with Jesus. That he's the one who satisfies. God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.